This is the Water Into Wine podcast. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be describing a journey that I've been on over the past 12 years, telling you about how I started off as a non-believer in the spirit world and ended up as a believer. I'll give you all the clues you need to go and verify this for yourself and go and research for yourself as well, because I don't expect anybody to listen to what I say and just believe it. But I do want you to go and look for yourself because you'll find everything's there. Now, you can find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and SoundCloud. Just search for Water Into Wine podcast. Welcome to episode four of Water in the Wine podcast. Now, this is a story, just in case you're just joining us. This is a story of my last 12 years of um, digging and finding and um, starting to understand the world around me and religious authority more than any other time during my life. Um, today's uh, episode is going to be about the Knights Templar because not many people have looked into the Knights Templar. It was it was mentioned in the Da Vinci Code, which brought it into to prop, popular vision, but nobody really understood or, or looked into it deep enough, apart from the historians. So I'm here to tell you some of the historical facts and rumours that were surrounding the Knights Templar. Very strange order, but we'll start at the beginning. I'll be reading some of this out of my book that I wrote a few years ago. And um, some of it I'll be filling in with information I've found since. So let's start at the beginning. In 1118 AD, a French nobleman called Hugh de Payen gathered eight of his close relatives together because he wanted to offer safe passage to Christians on their pilgrimages to Jerusalem. The band of men took vows of chastity, poverty and obedience and started praying at regular intervals during the day, just as monks of that time would. Now, the Grand Master, Hugh de Payan, then contacted King Baldwin II of Jerusalem to ask for his blessing and permission to carry out the task, which he was granted. The king stationed them on the southeastern side of the Temple Mount, where Solomon's temple is supposed to have stood 2,000 years earlier. And they called themselves the Poor Knights of Christ of the Temple of Solomon, but we know them as the Knights Templar. Well, that was the official traditional version anyway. But when you read that and you understand a little bit more about noblemen of the time, um, it starts to not make any sense at all. Nine noblemen of France to cover thousands of miles of land. What use were they going to be? Nine men. A thousand soldiers still wouldn't be able to look after an area of that size. Nevertheless, the Templars were provided with all the weapons and food they needed by the king. Now, the southeastern side of the Temple Mount is very near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was commissioned in 326 AD by Emperor Constantine's mother. And it's actually said to have been built on the spot where Jesus was supposed to have been crucified. Now, don't forget, Emperor Constantine is the one who put all the different gospels and rumours and legends about this Jesus Christ guy. Um, He put them all together into one unified book, what we call the Bible, which is actually called the Nicene Creed. He also decided on dates for Christmas and Easter and la 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 la. I told you all that last week. Now we do know that the Templars began digging. There's evidence that they used the caves under the mount as a stable and dug through solid rock with hand tools. Tunnels have been found recently there, some 25 metres deep through solid rock with Templar spurs and cloaks and hand tools at the bottom, suggesting they were dug by the Templars themselves. 
Now, we also know that the Templars were digging for nine years under the mount. Now, that's quite well documented. But then they just stopped. They stopped digging. Two of the nine monks, Hugh de Payen and André de Montbard, you'll have to excuse my, <laughs> my lack of French there. Sorry about that. Uh, they packed up and galloped off to see the nephew of André, who was the abbot of Claveau. Now, the abbot of Claveau went to speak to the Pope on their behalf. And because of this, a meeting was organised. The meeting's called the Council of Troyes. You can research this on Google. It's, it's quite well documented. After this meeting, the order of the Templars was not only accepted as an official order of monks, but also started becoming very, very wealthy, very quickly. They were being given land and jewels by various different people. Now, the strange thing is that the supposed reason that they started the order protecting pilgrims was never, ever, ever mentioned again. And nobody ever saw them do it. So why were they given land and jewels? What did they actually do? They travelled where they wished after this, and they did anything they wanted after this point, which was an extraordinary privilege at the time. Now, the opinion of the French historian, Gatan de la Forge, in, in his book, The Templar Tradition in the Age of Aquarius, was that they were there to excavate the mount to find relics. Within a few years, the Knights Templar had become one of the world's largest and richest supernational organisations of its time. Whether the organisation still exists today is in doubt, but one of the degrees in Freemasonry is called the Knights Templar. Nobody's really sure if the Freemasons copied the name from the original Templars or if the degree is a remnant of the originals. This shift in power was not the only change in the Templars um, following their time in Jerusalem. Whatever they found under the mount changed them, and it changed them drastically. You've got to remember they were noblemen who became monks taking vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. But on their return the Templars broke away from the church and began practicing what the church said is anti-religious acts. Interestingly, they also changed the shape of their cross. Now, you'll have to Google this. Their, their uh, most notorious cross was the first one, which is a normal Christian cross, but it was red, bright red. And then they changed it into more of a Maltese Templar cross, which you can Google as well. It's, it was very, very, very square um, um, with, with sides that tapered in towards the centre, a square top on it. Now, at first, I, I couldn't understand and find any reason why they'd done this. And that made me really curious. What could they have found that made them change the shape of their cross? So I kept looking at the new cross. I printed it up and trying to figure out why. Um... I kept turning it round and looking at it again from different angles and I even ended up cutting it out uh, to figure out why. And then finally I folded it and this was a, quite a shocking experience for me because it makes, when you pull the centre up, it makes a perfect pyramid with the top missing off, the capstone missing, just like the Great Pyramid of Giza, which has the capstone missing as well. So... I researched it and I found out that I wasn't the first person to come to this conclusion. They also later changed the shape of their cross again to one with bowed side. It was the third Templar cross. It had bowed sides. So it was more of a, it's still an equal sided cross. It's very difficult for me to explain this to you in, in words because I'm looking at the pictures now. Um, 
it's still an equal sided cross but all these straight lines have been bowed now that mystified me why would they change it again as the reason for the first lay in Egypt the, the Great Pyramid so I turned there again to look for the answer and I looked at all the pyramids and their chambers until I found myself studying at the Temple of Isis on Philae Island which is just off the coast of Egypt now this was a temple to the pagan goddess Isis and they had also existed in Rome as well this particular temple was built in approximately 370 BC and inside is a chamber called the Holy of Holies now most Egyptian temples had a chamber called the Holy of Holies these were chambers built into which only the highest ranking holy men were allowed and was referred to as God's place on earth inside the chamber stands the carving of their new cross on the what would you call that it's a stone table sacrificial table I presume um, it's it's right on the front of it now I've checked again and again but I just keep coming back to the same answer whatever the Templars found under the Mount in Jerusalem changed these monks so much that they broke away from the church whatever the case their subsequent choice of identifying symbol is a direct borrowing from Isis an Egyptian and pagan goddess via another Egyptian symbol that of the pyramid now in an age that didn't choose symbols lightly and which furthermore believed them to be invested with divine powers why had the temples chosen a specifically pre-christian religious cult for their signifying label what had they found beneath the mount that would lead them so far from orthodoxy how could they do this with the apparent blessing of the roman church's supreme authority in about 1150 a.d rumors had started to surface to the effect that the templars had found something under the mount something that they called the holy grail now the, the the legends and the rumors of the time said it was supposed to be a cup or some sort of vessel that held the blood of christ at one time or another giving it special powers legends also suggest that it was the templars themselves that started this rumor had it been true that they'd found such a cup whether it had special powers or not it would have conferred absolute power in the hands of those who controlled access to it this would have made the Templars absolutely untouchable and guardians of a power higher than any secular or religious authority in Christian Europe and yet it was scarcely within the interests of Rome to allow the Templars to contend this it was a dangerous very dangerous rivalry so why were the Templars making this potentially suicidal claim now we know that they turned their back on the church and its teachings to an extent their insignia allied them to the worship of an Egyptian goddess why were they making such an extravagant claim about a supremely Christian object by 1307 AD the Templars order was a major organization while also being the first international bank in European history they would lend large sums of money to monarchs and noblemen and rather than charge interest which was illegal at the time they charged rent on the borrowed money instead do you see how intelligent these people were very 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 intelligent men highly educated for the time they they could read latin and oh it just it just carried this this just shows you charging rent it, but they stayed within the law because they charged rent the king of france was also one of their biggest debtors um, that he used to borrow the money so he might fund his wars 
and soon he owed the Templars far more money than he could ever possibly pay back. Now the Templars felt that this couldn't continue, they began to seek repayment, and this sent the French king to confer with the Pope at the time, and the two agreed on a plan that would destroy their bankers. The French king asked all the highest-ranking Templars to join him in Paris for a meeting on Friday the 13th of October, 1307. This, what I'm about to tell you now, is the reason Friday the 13th is known as an unlucky day. This is where it comes from. Uh, the king also sent out orders to be opened at the same time, wherever there were Templars, ordering that every Templar be rounded up and either killed or imprisoned. The plan worked like clockwork. The Grand Master of the Templar Order was imprisoned in Paris. However, they didn't capture every Templar, and the ones that eluded capture were driven underground to avoid death. And I think there's, um, uh, there's quite a few historians that say there was around about two-thirds to three-quarters of them escaped. So they only, they only got a, you know, a, few, a few thousand men they got. They didn't get all of them. Now, as a result, they developed, the Templars developed a secret way of recognising each other, which was a way that would uh, let other Templars know who they were without openly revealing themselves to anyone else. It was a handshake. They adopted three types of handshakes, and each required the use of a special password, which was a double procedure. Um, and this had the advantage of working in, in the dark as well. This way of acknowledging each other was shown to them when they were in Jerusalem by stonemasons whose trade originated in Egypt. Now, as many people know, the Templar order was suppressed for a combination of official reasons, sodomy, heresy being only two of them, but they were the two most incendiary charges that the Middle Ages could levy against anybody. It was a show trial, basically, without evidence and without permitted defence. On the 13th of October 2004, bringing you forward a few years, just one or two, the modern Knights Templar demanded an apology from the Vatican, which they got three years later, just in time for the Order's 700th anniversary. Now, the Pope and the, uh, admitted that the Templars in 1307 did not commit heresy at all, and he blamed the then King of France for his greed for the Templars' money. Now, I find it really curious that the papacy should apologise its hand was false, basically. The Knights Templar constitutes no such threat whatsoever. The issue was 700 years old. It had been swept under the historical carpet. Or had it? After the 13th of October 1307, all the Templar strongholds were raided. Uh, this would have been to secure any wealth in cash or plate or armour or whatever they were holding. But the persecutors may have had another reason for looking but they found nothing of which they were prepared to boast. Now, is it possible that they were looking in the wrong place? For although the Templars were a wealthy order, they were aesthetic people, more guided by idealism and a sense of duty, and not by a material enjoyment of the temporal world. The highest-ranking Templars were intermittently tortured before finally being put to death in 1312, some five years later. This was a very long time to wait to kill them. Perhaps they were looking for a secret. While being tortured, the Templars confessed to heresy, to worshipping the severed head and a baphomet, as well as to urinating and spitting on the cross when initiating a new Templar knight. Now, given these men were unusually dedicated monks, it's curious that if these claims were made against them were true, why had the monks allowed these pagan practices to subsist alongside orthodox Catholic beliefs? 
I wonder if there might be a clue in the specific accusations. When taken singularly rather than treated as a range of ridiculous but effective instances of wicked pagan belief, each earning a painful death. And it took me a few years to discover that the severed head was the head of a ram, and that Baphomet is what's called a therianthrope, and is also a sigil. Witches also use sigils, another pagan belief. We'll talk about that another time. That the knights urinated and spat on the cross, I would contend, was not only that they believed that Christ was not crucified, but because he was also not the Son of God. For the knights, there was... Well, there would be no danger in doing these things in secret because God wouldn't punish them for disrespecting things that were not true. They could still be true believers and not believe what the church insisted was the case. This perhaps gave the Templars their intellectual superiority and independence from the conventional church. It might also have given them grounds to despise that same church's usual symbols, and yet they would give their lives to defend its misguided pilgrims. In the early 1980s, Dr. Hugh Schonfield discovered that if you use the Atbash cipher, I'll, I'll, I'll expel that for you, uh, so you can, you can uh, Google this, Atbash, as in A-T-B-A-S-H, cipher, C-I-P-H-E-R, uh, the Atbash cipher was the method used to decipher the Dead Sea Scrolls. When you use the Atbash cipher on the word Baphomet, it becomes Sophia. Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom, and also the Greek, Greek name of the goddess worshipped by the ancient Christian sect, the Gnostics. Now, the Gnostics believed that Sophia was the creator of the world, the sacred feminine, or Mother Nature, basically. While most people look at Baphomet and automatically see devil worship, it's actually nothing of the sort. Instead, it's a therianthrope and a collection of symbols put together to create a sigil. And the image of Sophia is exactly the same. So I want you to Google now Sophia, God of Wisdom, and Baphomet. And I'll run you through what I, what I found out. First of all, a sigil is a picture created for ritualistic purposes. And it's usually put together by joining a combination of specific symbols or patterns, each one having its own special ritualistic meaning. Now, the Freemasons even today use sigils during their rituals, but they call them tracing boards. So let's look at the Templar sigil piece by piece. In the picture of Baphomet, one hand is pointing up and the other is pointing down. As we've discussed already in, in past podcasts, this is a visual representation of as above, so below, which is a pagan mantra and a sign that's found on the Emerald Tablet attributed to Hermes. And we'll talk about the Emerald Tablet in a, in a later podcast. The picture is also half man and half woman, which are the two sides of nature, another pagan sign. The figure has horns, as did the Egyptian goddess Isis, whose temple on Philae Island was where the third Templar cross originated. If we trace this back, we'll find that every Egyptian deity had horns. For them, this was a sign of divinity and not evil. Now, it's very interesting to me that the, this symbol has been inverted and demonised, isn't it you? As if someone's trying to make us not look at it. Also, the Vikings used to wear, as we've discussed in a, in a previous podcast, helmets with horns on them because they wanted to be seen as gods. 
Now, between the horns on the Baphomet is a torch representing the sun. Again, we just need to look at the picture of the goddess Isis to, to see where this came from. On the forehead of Baphomet, you'll also notice a pentagram, which, as we discussed in an earlier podcast, is a pagan religious icon that represents earth, air, fire and water, uh, the material world, all controlled by the spirit world. The Baphomet also has the head of a goat or ram, which I couldn't initially explain until I discovered that the Egyptians worship both rams and therianthropes. So let me explain what the therianthrope is first of all, because this is quite important. Therianthropes are a mixture of human beings and animals and have existed in cave paintings going back thousands of years. Now, the Baphomet has also got wings and is sitting on the earth. The wings represents the celestial, the spiritual world, and the earthbound body, uh, the sitting on the earth, the terrestrial, our earthbound body, just as the two pillars in Freemasonry do. The two pillars, by the way, were, were uh, said to be on the porchway or entrance to King Solomon's temple on the mount in Jerusalem. In the Baphomet sigil, the moon, black, and the sun uh, are also in the picture, day and night, yet again more pagan and Freemasonry symbols. Around its waist was something that I found very curious and couldn't quite work out for quite some time. Then I discovered that it represents the Rod of Hermes. Now, if you go and get uh, a picture, Google a picture of the winged Rod of Hermes, and I'll talk you through that. Hermes was the messenger for the gods uh, and was the name attributed to he who also carved the emerald tablet. So now we've got, we've got the man that typed the emerald tablet, which I will tell you about in a, in, a, in a future podcast. He's tied in with what the Templars were worshipping um, around his waist. The Rod of Hermes is often mixed up with the, with the sign seen on most, most ambulances, to be honest with you. The ambulance version of this is called the Rod of Asclepius, and it's a rod with a snake crawling around, around it. It's a, it's a symbol of medicine. If you uh, type in the Rod of Asclepius on Google, find that picture. Um, it's a cross with a line through it. As it, it, it it's called the Rod of Asclepius. It's a very interesting sign. It's actually called a key row. It's an occult sign, and this is on the side of every ambulance I've ever seen. It's actually of pagan origin, and it sits right on the doorsteps of the Vatican, believe it or not. This sign holds a huge clue as to whom we actually pray to when we go to church, more of which I'll tell you about later on. So, questions. Why did the Templars put this rod around Baphomet's waist? Now, I'm a Freemason as well. I joined Freemasonry to, to extend my knowledge in this uh, ritualistic world. And when a Masonic lodge is closed down for the evening, this quote is used as the last words. Nothing now remains but according to ancient custom to lock up our secrets in a safe repository. Now it took me quite some time and plenty of research to find out that the Ark of the Covenant was also called a safe repository. In simple terms, the Ark was a vessel used to house particular sacred objects. The reason the Ark was called a safe repository was specifically because of the objects that were supposed to have been housed and what it done to the people that opened it. 
And that's where we're going to come to the end of this podcast. So I'm, I'm going back in time to explain to you different sects, different things that have happened in history because I'm trying to set the stage for what I'm about to tell you, as, as, as in what the Holy Grail actually is. And then I shall give you all the guys' uh, names who have researched this drink that I'm going to tell you that the Holy Grail is. Um, and then that will lead us on to quantum physics. But I have to tell you, you have to understand what happened in the past and the reactions of what happened in the past, as in the Templars, to, to give it a little bit more credence, give it a little bit more credibility, what I'm about to tell you. So I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, don't forget, I'm if you type Water Into Wine podcast on Google, you'll find me. I'm all over the place. I'm even on iTunes now. So next week, we'll discuss the Ark of the Covenant and what it actually held. Yeah, and we'll, we'll discuss how it's been twisted over thousands of years to say that it was something else that was in there other than what it was. I do hope you've enjoyed this podcast and um, have a fantastic week and I'll see you next week.